And we're going to continue in a spirit of worship. That is our direction. That is our mandate. That is our privilege. And so we do that in this context with the Bible. No surprise there. But the Bible is not just a book. It's not just a collection of stories. It's not just a cobbled together bunch of narratives. The Bible is one massive narrative that's communicating something. The Bible is the story of God and the earth. Let that perk for just a moment. There's a lot that happens in eternity past that we don't know that we're not told. There's a lot that will happen in eternity future that we are not given a lot of detail on. But the Bible is the story of God and the planet. This planet that is populated by a bunch of people who do not deserve this God because they are fallen. This planet is populated by a bunch of people who do not want this God because they are fallen. And yet this God is relentless in his pursuit of of them. What C.S. Lewis called the hound of heaven, always seeking after these people. And when these people who neither deserve nor want this God, when they act out in this way, it always inevitably turns into violence, one against another in one way or another. This God of ours, however, is relentless in his grace and in his pursuit, so much so that he sends the sendable self of the Godhead Trinity. The second member of the Trinity becomes just like one of those people who neither wants God nor deserves God so that he can contextualize and he can convey and communicate the criticality of right standing before a holy God. And in his earthly ministry, this Jesus, who in thought, word, and deed was flawless, pure, perfect, and sinless, he would communicate stories and he would tell different teachings so that people could understand who this God was, what he was like, what he was after. One of the stories that this Jesus tells in his earthly ministry is to be found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, and it's a familiar story. It's a story about forgiveness on the surface. But in reality, when Jesus tells a parable, an earthly story with a spiritual meaning or a physical illustration with a spiritual reality, when he's doing that, there's always a much deeper level that only the believer, only the student of the word indwelled by the spirit, surrounded by the community of faith can fully understand. It's in Matthew 18 and it's a familiar story. I wanna tell it to you very briefly. Peter, the apostle, the redhead, has been trying to show off. And he's trying to explain to Jesus that he's actually better than the other disciples. Always a good idea when you're trying to prove your discipleship medal. He says, hey, Jesus, check this out, check this out, check this out. I'm going to forgive not just seven times, but like 70 times. Huh? Huh? And then Jesus tells a story about forgiveness. But it's more than that. The story starts off with Jesus saying, oh, you want to impress me and you want to talk about forgiving in this day and age. But the kingdom of heaven will be like. Now, that's interesting. The story, of course, deals with forgiveness and as central and foundational as that is, and it is. But Jesus tells the story and he begins by saying, the kingdom of heaven will be like. That's instructive. That's an interpretive key. He says, there once was a king and the king was very wealthy and it became time for the king to call in his debts and he called in the first servant and he told the servant, you owe 10,000 talents. Now, we hear that in 21st century in Western world, and we go, eh, sounds like a lot of talents. Pay the man. No, 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 no. We didn't understand. One, or sorry, 10,000 talents is the equivalent of 165,000 years of labor. 
165,000 years of labor. So this debt is impossible. Nobody loses that big at the blackjack tables. Nobody does that bad business deals. Somehow this guy is in the hole for 165,000 years of wages. It's billions upon billions upon billions. And he says, pay up. And the servant says, I can't do it. I can never pay that off. King says, right, but I forgive it. I pay it myself, and he wipes it away clean. Ah, oh, wow. Jesus' point is this debt is eternal. It is infinite. It is exorbitant, unreachable, but it is wiped away. And so that first servant goes on his way. As you know the story, soon enough, he encounters yet a second servant, and that servant owes the first servant 100 days of wages. Not 165,000 years of wages, a hundred days. And he says, hey, you owe me a hundred days wage, pay up. And the guy says, I don't have it on me. Be patient with me and I will pay you. No. And the first servant begins to choke the dude out. Now that escalated quickly. Hey, how's your mom and dad? Where's my money? Well, the king hears about this. He finds out about this and he charges the first one and says, you wicked, evil servant. I will now throw you and your entire extended family into prison. Wow, that's harsh. Jesus tells this story. The point of the story is plain. It's about forgiveness, but maybe not as convicting as Jesus actually intended. Remember, Jesus is speaking this, Matthew 18, up in the Galilee, to a group of unregenerate Jews who were trying to prove to God and everybody else that they were better, that they were superior. They had a national arrogance. They were Israel exceptionalists, you might say. And so Jesus is telling them, oh no, but this is not the kingdom. I've offered it to you, but this is not it. Others are not less than you. You are not better than others. As King Solomon famously said in Ecclesiastes 1.9, there is nothing new under the sun. This has been a problem in humanity since the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve were created to go out into the world, a perfect environment, and yet they were to make it better. They were to expand and express and expand and express the righteous rule of God in the world and go and go and go. But they grasped for more. It wasn't enough. And so they rebelled. They sinned against God. And inevitably, just like we said, it turns to violence. Brother kills brother. And so violence continues to grow in the world until finally God is so grieved by the violence of people who neither want him nor deserve him that he has to baptize the entire world with water, the flood. After the flood, eight people come off the ark, but guess what else came off the ark? Sin. And people begin to increase in numbers and they decrease in their dependence of God, so much so that they begin to form governments and they say, we can solve this in our own ingenuity and power and creativity and organizational skills. We have no need of God. That's Genesis 11. And they build a tower to try to ascend to the heavens and God scatters them. Why? As a punishment? Partly. But also to send them out to go and express and expand and express and expand His righteousness in the world. Finally, God says, we're going to create an entire new people group, a new nation. Israel is to be a nation of priests, and they will now be the ones who assist in my program of redemption, reaching these people who neither want me nor deserve me. But Israel, a nation of priests, they will expand and express and expand and express my light and my loving kindness and my love into a dark and dying world but it only takes a couple centuries and that nation is ripped in half by violence that breeds more violence, that breeds more violence. And so after 
a few hundred years, not even God speaks to them through a prophet. And there is 400 years of silence until finally God sends his own son to incarnate into their midst, to say, this is the length to which I am willing to go to accomplish redemption of these people who neither want me nor deserve me. And Jesus offers up the kingdom. You guys, I am here. I will bring in this kingdom, this ethic, this aesthetic, this philosophy of life and love and abundance. And they killed him for it. But this Jesus is alive. And he will come again. And when he does, he will literally, legally, logistically rule from Jerusalem. He will establish his kingdom literally on earth. But until such time, he did something nobody saw coming. He kicked off the kingdom that he had offered, but he didn't do it with national boundaries or big palaces and estates. Oh, no. He sent his own spirit to indwell the heart of every believer that the kingdom would be a spiritual manifestation that would cover the entire planet where the aesthetic, the ethic, and the philosophy of that king would be manifest all over the world where people who were called according to his name, who were indwelled with his spirit, would view one another the way that God did with his image and immense value. That's God's plan. And so that leads us to our big idea for the morning. It goes very simply like this. Others matter. Others matter. They matter to God, and therefore they must matter to us. With all that, please turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. We've been studying in Jonah this entire month of August. We're going to land the plane this morning, Lord willing. We've been studying through the book of Jonah, this little narrative book in the Minor Prophets. It's really not much of a prophetic book at all. There's only five Hebrew words of prophetic oracle. Everything else is narrative. And it's not about Israel as much as it's about Jonah, the person. And he's not the hero. He's not the good guy. He's the bad guy. The story's really about God using Jonah as a delivery mechanism to show the failures of Israel. Jonah is a microcosm. He is the encapsulation. He is the personification of the nation of Israel. The book of Jonah is narrative. Chapters 1 and 3 and 4 are all about Jonah himself. Chapter 2 is what I call Psalm 151, where Jonah understands the greatness of God. Not so much a crystal clear repentance from Jonah in the belly of the fish. And that experience of Jonah being in the belly of the fish sometimes overshadows the real message of the story of Jonah. The story of Jonah is about a God who is gracious, a prophet, a professional preaching religious man who was graceless and a relentless mission to reach the nations with the love of God. And so our theme has been God's relentless grace. We have to remember that Jonah was a real prophet. He prophesies in 2 Kings 14 to King Jeroboam II in 763 BC that the nation's boundaries would increase to that which was like those of Solomon. And it happens, but the prophets Amos and Hosea were also prophesying to Jeroboam saying, God's going to do this, and then he's going to take it all away from you. And Jonah did not like that message at all. They were both prophesying truth. Jonah was the good news guy. Amos and Hosea were the bad news guys, and Jonah did not like that whatsoever. Well, we've made it through chapters 1 and 2 and 3. At the end of chapter 3, we see that Jonah goes and preaches the worst sermon ever. He says, 40 days, you're all going to die. 
And you would expect for them to throw rocks at his face until he was dead. No, they all face plant and repent and they fast. They don't eat or drink and they put sackcloth on. Even the cattle repents. Even the cattle's wearing sackcloth. That's how you know you're a good preacher. The text says at the very end of chapter three, the Ninevites repented of their evil and God relented from pouring out evil on the evil Ninevites. And so you sort of expect there should be a verse 11 in chapter 3. You expect chapter 3 verse 11 to say, and the heart of Jonah melted like warm butter on an East Texas August afternoon. And he saw the grace and the mercy and the compassion of God. And he marveled and wondered that these pagan, violent Ninevites should receive such grace and mercy, this unmerited favor from an unobligated giver. And he went back into the city and he discipled them and he taught them the stories of Moses and the Exodus. And there was much rejoicing and righteousness was expanded and it was expressed. Nope. There is no Jonah chapter three, verse 11. Instead, what we get is Obadiah. There we go. Much better. Instead, what we get is Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. That is a nice, sweet, ESV sanitized translation. Literally translated, it would be, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. Now, there's a little bit of a play on words. This whole chapter reads more like a satire. The Ninevites, who were evil, repented of their evil. God, who is holy and sovereign, relented from pouring out evil on them. And it was a great evil to Jonah that God did not repay evil with evil the way Jonah would have done. The man of God, the professional preacher, the religious guy, it was evil to him, a great evil. It says there in chapter 4, verse 1, he was angry. This is a horrible indictment, not just on Jonah, but that which he represents, which was the covenant community, the messianic people, the people of God, and therefore on us. Remember, just because the book is named for Jonah, he's not the good guy. He's not the protagonist. He's actually the antagonist. He's hot with rage. Verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord and said, I mean, this is amazing. Do you remember the story that Jesus told in Matthew 18, where this guy owes 165,000 years worth of wages? If he would have yelled in the face of the king, the king would have come up with 32 flavors of ways to kill him. It would have been a very bad day for that first servant. Jonah has the audacity to yell at God. Jonah prayed to the Lord, to Yahweh, and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? See, remember, I think Jonah knew that Amos and Hosea had prophesied that Assyria would wipe out Israel, and he wanted no part of those people have any access to his God. He said, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made, I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Do, do you hear that language? Do you know what he's doing? Sure you do. I sure do. He's self-justifying his sin. He's declaring it righteous. He's outside of God's plan and his will. He's in rebellion, and he's trying to explain to God why it's a good idea. As if God's going to go, whoa, I never thought, good point. Actually, you know what? You are all right. Full de- Go get him, tiger. Go to Spain. I've tried it. Never once has God gone, never thought about that. You are right in your rebellion and depravity. Huh, I'm proud of you. Very creative. Never. And yet we continue to try. That's why I made haste to go to Tarshish, which again is the west coast of Spain. 
For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now this absolutely blows me away. It's one of the most stunning and shocking verses in all of your Bible. If you've been to Bethel downtown at all, perhaps you're just visiting, but you should know that probably 10 times a year, because I can't help it, I reference Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. It is, in my humble yet accurate opinion, one of the most central verses in your Old Testament. It is the story of Moses who has led the children of Israel out of Egypt through death into life. They've gone on all kinds of rebellions. And finally, God says, I'm going to kill him. Moses says, I don't want you to do that. I'm praying that you don't. God says, I'll relent because of your intercession, Moses. What do you want? Moses says, I want to see your glory. God says, you can't because I would vaporize you. I'm too holy and you are corruptible. But what I will do is put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand and then I'll pass by and I'll just tell you what I'm like. Moses, this is what I'm like. I am the Lord. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in loving kindness. In chesed, I am relenting from disaster. That's what he tells Moses he is like. 750 years later, Jonah throws that back in God's face. Moses, jo Jonah was a prophet. He knew the scriptures. He knew Torah. He says, God, I knew it. Those Assyrians, they're so violent. They're horrible. I knew that you were a God of loving kindness, slow to anger, relenting from disaster. I knew this would happen. Whoa. Let, no, let, let, let me amplify. It would be very much as though I'm sitting downstairs in the foundry and someone gets out of Smith County Prison, just right here, catty corner to us, and they were guilty as sin, hardened, horrible, heinous, violent crime, and they're coming out of prison. But while they were inside, they had a radical conversion experience, and they became a Christian. They fell in love with the Son of God and His finished work. They loved the Word of God. He's indwelled by the Spirit of God. And that person comes to the foundry, finds me, and tells me his conversion experience. And what do I do? I throw down my cinnamon roll. That's a joke. I would never do that. It's bad stewardship. <laughs> Clearly, I'm not throwing down anything carbohydrate. I throw down my cinnamon roll and I say, no, I knew it, God. I knew it. For you so loved the world, you just had to give your only begotten son so that that guy might believe in him and not perish and have everlasting life. That's so unfair. That's what Jonah is doing. This is in your Bible. Exodus 34, 6 is the John 3, 16 of your Old Testament and he throws it in God's face. Now, don't look at the text. Don't look at the text because you know what verse four is going to say. Verse four is going to say, and the Lord God did smite him into a pool of silliness and death and shame and stupidity. Amen. Doesn't say that. It should totally say that he made Jonah a tiny little smoldering crouton of buffoonery. And the Lord God did look over his shoulder and say, hey, Gabriel, watch this. No. It doesn't say that. It's absolutely amazing. Verse four continues. Oh, actually, sorry, let me finish verse three. Therefore now, O Lord, because it just gets even crazier. Verse three, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. I don't even wanna live in a world where a God like you can exist. I don't wanna exist in a universe in which you might show grace to my enemies. That's what Jonah says. And so you would expect, God to just snuff him out. And the Lord God said, what? 
What a grace. What a shock. You would expect it to be all over for Jonah. No, the Lord God said, do you do well to be angry? That's a weird translation. It's, do you really think you have a right to be so hot? The, the text is hot, violent, rage, evil. Do you really think you have the right to be so hot about this? Not surprisingly, there in verse 4, Jonah doesn't even answer. He doesn't want to talk with God. God asks him a rational question, and like a petulant child, Jonah just walks away. Unbelievable. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. Now, that doesn't probably ring any of our bells, but it should. Way back in the book of Leviticus, 750 years earlier, God, through Moses, prescribes the feasts of Israel. One of those feasts was the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. I always have to pronounce that very clearly because my elders get really sketchy. The Feast of Booths, Booths, all right? where the children of Israel were, for one whole week, supposed to create a little hut, a little lean-to, and they lived in that little hut as a reminder of the Exodus, where God provided for them mercifully and graciously and abundantly despite their rebellion. As he's leading them into salvation, he's providing for them while they're complaining the whole way. And so that annual Feast of Tabernacles, they were supposed to make this little Sukkot, to sit in for a week. Jonah goes outside and makes himself a Sukkot. There's some irony here. There's some satire here. But not to thank God for his abundance and provision, to sit out there and fume that God is a God of favor and grace and mercy. And he just sits out there and he bakes. Verse five. Jonah went outside the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. This is amazing. Jonah's going, okay, I know God said that he was going to relent if they repented, and they did, and he did, but just maybe, maybe God will repent of his repentance. Maybe God will get a bad hair or something. will make him fuzzy. Oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please. Is that some brimstone in the sky? Do I see a fireball? Please, oh, please. He's still hoping that God might still somehow wipe out the Ninevites. It's really a horrible indictment on what Jonah wants. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head. So if you're keeping score at home in the book of Jonah, so far God has hurled a massive uncharacteristic wind over the Mediterranean that caused a massive unexpected storm. He then trains a giant fish to do exactly his bidding to catch Jonah at just the right time and then to puke him out on the beach. That's a well-trained fish. That's a tip-off that God is in this somehow. More miraculously, he softens the heart of hundreds of thousands of Ninevites and they repent and they fast. Now, He's going to cause a plant to grow up overnight to cover this six-foot shelter. A lot of people have asked, what kind of plant is this? This is kikayon in the Hebrew. Is it a castor seed plant? Maybe, don't know. The ecology of that area was vastly different 2,700 years ago, and it's not the point. The point is God makes something happen miraculously, supernaturally. This plant overwhelms where Jonah is sitting. Now, there's more humor here, but it's subtle. It's provide shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. <laughs> okay, let me, let me catch you back up. The Ninevites were evil. They repented of their evil. God relented from pouring out evil of them. Jonah was a great evil. It was great evil to him. But then he got some shade. And the text literally in the Hebrew would say, and he rejoiced with great rejoicing. 
It took that much. I want you to holocaust the entire city. I want a complete annihilation. I want a genocide. Oh, sweet shade. Oh, praise God from whom all blessings flow. He rejoiced with great rejoicing, is what the text says. Do you see how fickle and how shallow that is? Are you convicted yet? Because I am. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came upon the next day, God's going to do a parable. Not a spoken parable like Jesus does in the New Testament. This is a word, a word picture, a demonstration in the physical realm to make a point here. When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Again, if you're keeping score, he's throwing a wind, he moved a fish. He caused their hearts to repent. He caused the plant to grow. Now he's even in the little bitty worm taming business. Aren't you glad? This is our God who caused the sun to stand still in the sky for a day with Joshua, who made one little iron axe head float in the water. This is our God. And now he causes this little bitty worm to gnaw at the stalk of this giant plant, and that's all it takes, and the plant begins to wither. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. Up you go, wind, go get him. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. This is how I know Jonah was a redhead. We gingers cannot handle the outside hairdryer, wind, and sun. We just can't handle it. It beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. Or he hasn't spoken to God since he said, just take me off the earth. I don't want to live. It's better for me to die. He hasn't spoken to God since, but he reiterates his little refrain here. I just want to die. And said, it's better for me to die than to live. This is how he's talking to God. Now, astonishingly, God says to Jonah, and I hope you and I, have the intelligence to understand the voice that God, it's not thundering, it's not booming. Listen to how God's gonna speak. It's very subtle in the text. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Do you really have a right to be angry about this piece of vegetation, Jonah? Do you hear yourself? Do you see yourself? How did you come to be like this, Jonah? And then just like Jesus in the parables, who often explains it to his clueless disciples, God's going to explain this to Jonah, why the plant thing even happens, because it is bizarre. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Okay, child, we got it. What are you, a three-year-old? I mean, this is the prophet of God. Yes, I do well, because my plant's gone. Mm. Verse 10, and the Lord said, Jonah, Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a single night and perished in a night. You didn't cultivate this. You didn't curate this. You didn't even create this. And yet you think you're entitled to it. Mm, convicted yet? Verse 11, and this is the question. And the book ends with the question. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, He's not calling it great because they have two red lobsters and an olive garden, okay? It's because it's full of people. And people, all people matter to God. God is saying, Jonah, others matter. He asks him rhetorically, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Now, that could mean children, in which case there'd be probably a half a million people in there, or maybe it just means 120,000 morally corrupt, in which case there's probably 300,000 people in there. Either way, 
It's a few hundred thousand people. Jonah, you're upset about a plant that you didn't create, you didn't cultivate, you didn't curate. You're not entitled to it at all. But Jonah, Jonah, I created those hundred thousands of people. Jonah, I know their names. I know the abuses that those spouses are receiving. I know the horrors those children are enduring. They bear my image, Jonah. I love them. I am providing opportunities for them to have right relationship with me restored. Jonah, you're upset about celery. I'm talking about 120 people plus. And Jonah, if that's not enough, and also much cattle, he's going, look, can you at least be an animal lover? You're upset about a plant. There's a half a million souls in there that are going to spend an eternity apart from me. Not only that, there's livestock, there's cattle, there's goats, there's, there might even be a cat or three. But still, Jonah, can you at least care about that? And the question hangs out over. Intriguingly, it's left for each of us to answer. And that's how the book of Jonah ends. So what are we, walking through these four chapters of Jonah, what are we supposed to take away from that? Let me give us four quick concluding principles that will help us to perhaps be portable in our thinking about the book of Jonah. Number one goes like this. Let compassion conquer conceit. I will tell you on the front end, all of these are alliterative. Quite proud of that. You can email me and thank me later. Really hard work to get this done this way. Number one, let compassion conquer conceit. I have no way of knowing this for sure, of course, on this side of glory, but I think, I suspect, Saul of Tarsus, Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, member of the Sanhedrin, tutored under Gamaliel, I bet he reviled and despised the book of Jonah because it was an indictment against the people of Israel. Jesus used it as such. But I would strongly suggest, and I bet, that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, I think he loved the book of Jonah. Because I think it's in his mind as he writes a letter to the first church in the Western world. The first church in Western culture and civilization is the church at Philippi. And Paul writes them a little letter called Philippians. And in it, he says this. I think he learned these lessons from the book of Jonah. Philippians 2, 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. What is he saying? Hey, Philippians, others matter. My people Israel and the person of Jonah and as a nation, we didn't do so great at that. We were Israeli exceptionalists. But others matter. Count others more significant than yourselves. I think we look at the life of Jonah. I think we can all agree that it was largely selfish ambition out of conceit or empty glory and that incomplete thinking about God led to incorrect thinking about himself, which produced an immature attitude of violence towards others. He just simply wanted several hundred thousand people to just die. He's more concerned about his shade tree than the lives of all these hundreds of thousands of people. But we have been given the mind of Christ. And every encounter we have with another person is an opportunity to intentionally engage with that mindset of Christ with his indwelling spirit, such that we view people around us with compassion, just like Jesus did. Read the Gospels. See how he's viewing them with value, with dignity, with nobility, with the image of God stamped on them. Others matter. So let compassion conquer conceit. Number two, 
This is where I meddle. Let compassion conquer convenience. I can tell you this is personally very convicting. All too often I have found myself complaining about the death or demise of some little proverbial weed when there are people all around me in desperate need of light and love and life. It's all too easy to forget to look around and see the wreckage, to look only to ourselves. But again in Philippians, I think the Apostle Paul pulling right from the message of Jonah he writes this in Philippians 2.4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is a supernatural capacity that we have. It is spiritual warfare in our world today. Yes, we are called and in fact even invited into the privilege of suffering inconvenience for the sake of another. And so yes, we frequently and regularly will ask you, our members, to give to the ministries of this church perhaps even to the level of sacrificial sting, not so that we can build big gilded uh, cathedral roofs and steeples, no, but so that we can express and expand the glories and grace of God as an unobligated giver. So are you suffering any level of inconvenience so forth at all? Let compassion for others conquer your convenience. Number three, let compassion conquer consternation. Still dealing with the Apostle Paul, writing in the book of Philippians. In chapter 4, he finally gets to his point, and it's strange, but I think it's also influenced and informed by the book of Jonah. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. What is that about? It's a book in our Bible, and these two women are immortalized for 2,000 years as always chirping at each other and always barking at each other. I don't know, Yodia made fun of Syntyche's tater tot casserole. Who knows? But they're fighting, and it's causing a problem in the church, so much so that Paul's literally sitting in jail in Rome, and he has to write a letter to tell these women to stop it. It's harming the church. Others matter. Show compassion. See, Jonah was a cranky and fussy, hot mess, generally in a bad mood because of his circumstances, and so he wasn't even making good human sense. Our frustrations are when expectations are not met, and so we get to readjust and recalibrate our expectations to those of the Lord. And so as Jesus said, a new command I give you, John 15, love one another, others matter. And it's tough to be mad at another believer when you're locking arms and staring up at the cross of Christ who died for all others. Fourth point, we'll land here. Comparison is the giver of joy. Now there's a double twist here. I need to unpack this. There's an old adage, and it's true, that says comparison is the thief of joy. Because if you compare yourself to other people, what they have, what they're capable of, what they can do, what they have done, then that's an inappropriate yardstick and you'll begin to lose fulfillment and you will lose your joy. And that's true. But we say around here, sort of jokingly, sometimes tongue in cheek, comparison is the giver of joy as long as you're winning. <laughs> well, we sort of know that we shouldn't really be saying that and that it's not really funny, but we still say it. But I want to now double nuance that and say, no, it's actually true. Net of what we see in Jonah we have the opportunity to compare ourselves to others, not by means of what they have or what they can do or what advantages or blessings they've received or what they have accomplished, but by the reality that nobody else has anything that merits God's favor, and yet it is available to them in fullest measure. Others matter, and praise God, so do I, and so do you. Now, why am I saying that? Because I'm a pastor, 
And I know the situations that many of you are experiencing and facing, or you soon will face. And some of you have bought into the lie that you're damaged goods, or you have somehow sinned beyond God's mercy and grace. You've heard the whispers that you are a nasty Assyrian worthy only of punishment. But look around at the rest of us. God still wants relationship with us as well, and you're no different. And I say this all too often with fear and trepidation. Your greatest sin may still be ahead of you, but you are never beyond God's grace. You are never beyond God's grace. Revel. Rest in the kind of God that we have. I am better than no one else, and God could not possibly love me more than he does right now and forevermore. Others matter. I mentioned it already. The book of Jonah ends intriguingly with a question. It's left for us to answer. So does Jonah ever come around? Does he ever actually repent and get straight? Well, the Bible, vexingly and unfortunately, doesn't actually tell us. But I maintain that Jonah is the one that wrote this book himself, or at least he dictated it to a scribe. So my sense is that he ultimately did repent sometime later, and he wrote this book as a personal demonstration of his own failure to care about others and how God ultimately and utterly cares about people. He writes this book so that we will hold it up as a mirror for ourselves. He writes this book to point us to a better Jonah, to a better Israel. May I suggest Jesus. Praise God, he's such a better Jonah. He's such a better Israel. See, Jesus also went outside the city. No, no, not in a little booth or a hut, but to climb up on a cross. And he did not pray that Jerusalem would be firebombed. He said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Aim here. Is that brimstone and fire that I see? Aim here. Pour it all out on me because they matter. Far be it that they should experience an eternity apart from you. They matter. And the Lord God did smite his own son and withheld nothing and poured out his unmitigated fury and wrath and judgment upon his own son. It was just so, oh, what would Jonah say? Unfair. Praise God. And so now we, the bride, the church, we get to emulate our groom until such time as he should return. And so I summarize it like this. What this world needs is people who matter to God, seeing and believing that they matter to people to whom God matters. Did you track all that? I'll say it again. What this world needs is people who matter to God, that's the people just out in the general population of the earth, seeing and believing that they matter to people to whom God matters. That's us. What this world needs is not more political rhetoric or picketing. What this world needs is for those people who matter to God, for them to matter to us to whom God matters. God gets it done. Others matter. This is God's way. May we walk in it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this message and its bright mirror refraction and reflection on each of us that we tend to elevate ourselves in arrogance. But I thank you for the humbling that this book provides, that nobody's any better and nobody's any worse, that you love us equally now and forevermore. And so I pray, Father, if there's someone here this morning 
who is still trying to eke out and prove to you that they deserve you? Would you persuade them of the truth of the gospel, the good news of what you've done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another? And we thank you for Jesus. Would you, Father, give that person understanding? Would you give them agreement? Would they trust it? Would they be persuaded that Jesus is who your word claims he is? And he did what it says he would do. And for the rest of us, Father, may the gospel ever shine forth in each of our lives, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our friendships, in this church, in our community. That this place would be the epicenter of the demonstration and the truth that others matter. God, thank you for the gospel. Thanks for inaugurating and initiating your kingdom. May we expand and express your ethic, your aesthetic. You are lovely. May others see you in us. We pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.